here at Crossroads Church. We've been doing this for several weeks, this foundation series, and we're going to continue this today by doing a very important topic on the name and the glory of God. We're simply calling it today, Hallowed to be thy name. Can we get that right from Scripture? So again, we've been, we've been doing these foundation series, and therefore we've been going through a lot of different texts together. So have your Bible handy and available. We're going to jump around a little bit today. But this topic today is so important, it probably should have been number one in our foundation series. We didn't necessarily go in order. Of course, we started with Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. That's important, of course. But today we're going to talk about the name of God and, and how to hallow that name. Because this topic today is so big, so important, there's probably no way that we can do it justice in 45 minutes or so. But we're going to tip our toes into, into it today and hopefully, by God's grace, Hallow his name today, and that's our goal today. And if we get this right from Jesus' prayer, if you remember that, when Jesus told his disciples how to pray, this is how he started. He said, pray then like this. And I don't think Jesus necessarily meant that we need to recite this every time we pray, although that's not bad to do. I think what he was saying more than anything is here's a template for what you should pray for. And the first thing he told us to do when he said pray, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, if you pray for one thing alone, pray that God's name is hallowed. Pray that God's kingdom comes. Pray that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I wonder, do we pray that way when we pray? Or do we often jump right to our prayer list and forget that God's name being hallowed is our greatest desire? And so we're going to set this forward as a foundation of Crossroads Church that we want everything to hang upon the glory and the name of our great God. Amen? Amen? And that's the goal today. And I'm going to take you on a journey a little bit of why this is so important. Because I've spent a lot of my time working with young adults. I spent 12 years working with young adults on secular campus. And there's a lot of different perspectives on what God's name should be and what his glory should be about. In fact, how many denominations of Christianity do you think there are? Throw a number out there. Who said 100. You're way off. <laughs> nice guess, though. Anyone else? I heard there's 1,300. There's actually an estimated 41,000 <laughs> denominations. Now, I know how accurate that, that is, but the fact that that's even listed as 41,000 denominations of Christianity, and my point in bringing that up is there's 41,000 different perspectives of how to do this thing. Well, we don't want to give you a different perspective. We don't want to create a new one here today. We simply want to let the Word of God speak today about the beautiful, holy name of God. And in order to do this, we need to understand this word hollow. Okay? Now, this is not a word we use a lot except for when there is Halloween, of course. Which actually, interestingly enough, maybe not, it started as a Christian holiday. Did anybody know that? Halloween. Like most holidays, they start... They start you know, with some Christian backing to them. But hollow, the word we do not use a lot, means to honor as holy. It's a verb. To honor as holy. And what does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be unique. It really means to be one of one. That is our God, is it not? He is one of one. There is none like our God. Now, the word hollow does not mean to make him holy, does it? Our God is holy on his own. He stands on his own. The word hallow means to honor him for what he actually is. And you go back to the prayer, that's what Jesus told his disciples. Pray that you would be able to hallow 
the name of your God. And I think that's an important thing that we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, which we talked about a little bit last week, the first thing you find in the Ten Commandments is very similar. In verse 3 of Exodus 20, this is what it says. It says, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. There should be none other. I should be one of one in your life. There should be no rivals, no equals, no knockoffs. God and God alone. He goes on in verse 4 to say, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why, God? Why not? Because you cannot replicate God. You cannot. Any time you try to replicate God or Jesus Christ, you fail miserably because he's so lofty. He's so unique. He's so precious. He's so beautiful, so glorious, that any attempt to sort of make a likeness of any sort of God upon the earth fails miserably. So he said, don't do it. Don't do it. Honor me for who I actually am based on what I teach you. And then he said, you shall not bow down to them or serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do not give my glory to another visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he says this, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word vain means to be worthless. And this is a common problem in our day and age, is it not? Yes. To take God's name and use it any way we want. And I hope you cringe when you hear that name being taken that way. Because we're supposed to. Because that name is not worthless. It means everything to us. And he says, don't take my name in vain. Don't use it trite. Don't act like it's a swear word. Don't use it to, to firm up an oath you have. Don't use my name flippantly. He says, for the Lord God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is an important name, and it's so important. The entire foundations of the world are built upon this name. The entire foundations of heaven itself is built upon the name of our great God. In fact, if you often teach the gospel to someone, this is often where a lot of people start in Romans 3.23. I was taught this thing, maybe you guys remember this, called the Romans Road. Anyone remember that? The Romans Road is kind of a way to share the gospel going through the book of Romans. And sort of the first stop along the way is this idea in Romans 3.23 for it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As if to say the glory of God is the thing we're looking to do, and we've all failed at that. So if this bullseye is God's glory, we've all fallen woefully short of how God has created us to do and to be. Because God's glory is the chief end of man. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, we have these people in our society called atheists. And it's a growing problem. Atheism is basically saying there is no God. And it's funny how people arrive at atheism. Really how they arrive at atheism is they don't like God. They don't like how God is depicted or possibly how their life has gone. So they come up with this term called atheism, which means I don't believe. I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe there's a creator. 
And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He said, atheism is a strange thing. Even the devils never fell into that vice. Isn't that interesting? Because it says in James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The devils never fell into that vice. And why do I bring that up? Because atheism is very common today. In fact, I found a quote from one Brad Pitt. You guys have heard of him? Famous movie actor. He once said this. He said, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego, and I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. Isn't that a sad quote? Every time I read that, I feel sad. Because he clearly doesn't understand it. And there's been a time in our lives when all of us didn't understand this. And our goal today is to help us understand it. We're actually going to use this as sort of a starting point for understanding the glory of God. Because in Isaiah 55, God referring to himself says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isn't it possible, even likely, that God's mind is so far above our own that his ways greatly outdoes our own mind's ability to comprehend it. Isn't that possible? That perhaps the thing that God thinks about, the things that God plans and, and does in his heart and mind is so far advanced that our finite, fallible minds just cannot fathom all the things that God is about. And that's why mankind struggles, because in our logical train, we try to make sense of God, but God says, I am so far above you in how I operate that you will struggle unless I help you. And our goal is for God to help us today. Now, I have eight children, and <laughs> children are a good example of this. Now, again, I love children. I hope you know that. But children are a good example of this because there are several people in my ho own household who think that daddy's main goal from sunrise to sunset is to satisfy their every whim. So any whim that pops into their mind, that is why daddy exists, so daddy should satisfy that whim. So they'll come up to me and say, daddy, I want this, daddy, do this for me. And they don't understand that possibly daddy has a calling that is beyond their ability to understand it. In fact, I have one young son, Marcus, who on occasion I will come home with a little surprise, a little piece of candy, a little toy, because I like to every now and then surprise my children. Well, Marcus now has in the, in the back of his mind that somehow anytime I arrive with a bag of anything, it is a treat for Marcus. So I will arrive home with a grocery bag or a bag of stuff with, that has my work in it, and he will go, Daddy, what, what's in that bag? Is there something exciting in that bag? And they'll have to look and go, oh, it's eggs. Or... <laughs> Oh, it's just, it's just your work. And he's very disappointed to think that Daddy did not surprise him on that given day because Marcus's thoughts are all about Marcus right now. And it's just how kids are built because of sin. So we are represented here as children in this picture here that somehow we're not able to grab onto the concept that God has loftier ways than we do, higher ways than we do. God is thinking about things that are so complex, so beyond our minds, that sometimes we struggle going, maybe God doesn't love me at all because he's not satisfying my every whim. 
Well, we're going to explore these four things today because I wonder in the back of Brad Pitt's mind, if he still believes this way, what he believes God should be about. Because Brad Pitt represents a common problem today. That I reject God, I don't follow God, because I don't believe that God lines up with what I believe God should line up with. So I wonder in the back of these people's minds what they believe God should be about. I'm going to give us four options today. And we're going to explore these very briefly. But four things that God could be about. In fact, if we were God, maybe we would choose one of these four. These are four options, four really big options. They're not the only options, but they're four big things that God could be about if God was the highest being. Number one is the welfare of the universe. Number two is mankind's earthly happiness. Number three are angels and heavenly beings. And then the last one that we'll circle back to is the glory of God's name. What should God be about if he was really good, if he was really righteous? Now, we know the answer, right? Those who have been in Christianity long enough know that, of course, it's number four. But I'm going to take us on a journey to explore why it has to be number four. Because even mankind does this, do they not? They strive for excellence. Mankind seeks to go up the ladder of success, do they not? No one wants to go down the ladder, okay? No one's trying to get a worse job, less recognition, less money, be treated worse. No one's looking to go down. Everyone's looking to go up. Everyone's looking to strive for greatness, the Nike ad says. Where do we get that model? We get it from God. We're built by God's image. We are made of the likeness of God. So we strive for excellence, and we all think that's an honorable pursuit, to strive for what's greatest and best, to go up to the highest possible thing we can go to. Well, God does this as, God does this as well. He strives for the greatest thing there is. He strives for the highest and the loftiest and the most excellent thing there is in everything he does. And we should be okay with that. In fact, we should want that for our God. But let's start here. God could be about the welfare of the universe. If he was a good God, then maybe God should care about this universe that he's created. And maybe that should be the end game for everything that he does. is how to better sustain and better enhance this universe that we live on. And this is very common today, that people will give their entire lives to this concept. Now, does, it, does this mean this concept is bad? No, it's not bad. I don't think it's bad at all. I think to some degree, even Christians should be concerned about the environment and concerned about things upon the earth. I really believe that's an honorable pursuit. But that's not the question, is it an honorable pursuit? The question is, is it the highest pursuit? Is it the greatest pursuit to care about the state of the universe and state of the earth? That's the question we're looking at today. To be a tree hugger and go green on all things and worry about recycling and, and how to best you know, help the ozone layer and, and global warming come down, which I'm all for. For those who are not heat weather fans, which I'm not, anything to be the, bring the global warming down, I'm all for. But is that the greatest pursuit out there? Well, let's look at what the Word of God says. Now, in Revelation 6, we have a prophecy. That's what this is here, okay? And if you know anything about prophecies in the Word of God, they always come true. All right? So in Revelation 6, we're given a prophecy. And it says in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Isn't that remarkable? 
Now, we live around the beautiful White Mountains, okay? And there's a picture of Mount Washington, I believe. But can you imagine this happening one day? According to the prophecy of God's word, the mountains will be removed from their place. Now, has anyone been to the Midwest? Many of you have been to the Midwest because this is what the Midwest looks like. Now, aren't you glad you live around mountains? Right? I, I lived in Iowa for a spell, and it's miserable. My brother lives in Iowa, and I don't understand how he does that. I'm sorry, Travis probably listening today, but <laughs> Iowa compared to New Hampshire is not a good comparison, okay? But I want you to imagine one day that all of a sudden this went to this. This went to this. This went to this because the mountains were removed from their place kind of like they were props of a stage in a play, taken away. And according to the prophecy, they will be. They'll be taken away. In fact... That's not even a good depiction because it'll really be like this. Now, if you remember how the earth was created, well, how was it, what was it at the beginning? Darkness and void. And one day the Lord is going to remove this earth. In fact, he's not going to remove it. Because let's read from 2 Peter verse 3. This is actually what's going to happen to the earth. He said, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist. Okay, we're upon this planet now. It now exists. We still have this earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you know that about this earth we live on? It's stored up for fire. Many of you do this in the warm and the cold season, right? We store up firewood. So that when the cold season comes, when the heat bills are really high, we don't say, I'm just going to live through the winter without, without heat. No, we store up this firewood so we can use it and burn it for fuel. Well, that's kind of what the earth is stored up for right now. It's being stored away for fire one day, according to 2 Peter. And that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around because it's like, God, you created this earth. And there's so much beauty upon this earth. But there's also something really tragic that happened to the earth. It was cursed, if you remember. At the fall, God cursed the earth and he said, this earth is now temporary. I have a new heaven and a new earth that one day I will create. But the old earth is reserved for fire. One day the earth will burn away. Do you understand now why possibly going green and caring about the environment is not the number one cause we should have as people? Because it's, a, it's an exercise in futility. One day it's going away regardless of how well we treat it. Regardless of how green we are, regardless of how lofty we are about serving the environment and the ozone layer and global warming, one day the global warming is going to really take over and the earth will burn away. So it can't be the highest pursuit, can it? Because this earth we live on is temporary. And we have to move quickly, so let's keep going down our list. This is a big one too, mankind's earthly happiness. If God was really good, as we mentioned with the children thing, God would care about all our dreams and wishes and happiness. If he really loved us, his chief end would be how to make Todd happy in all matters. Every desire Todd has, I should give it to him. That's how my children think. Every time we go to a store, we should buy this and this and this. And if not, Daddy doesn't love me. Now, we don't believe that, right? We don't really believe that God should care about earthly happiness, but there are many people who do. Many people say God is not good because he does not set man's happiness as his chief end. In fact, you'll see this over all these kinds of pharmaceutical commercials. You guys ever seen these commercials? Where if you take this pill... You'll, your life will be restored to you. You'll go back to your taekwondo or your weird stretching in the park. Or 
your life will be fantastic once again. And they always have these massive smiles on their, hand, on their, on their faces like, this is the best medicine I've ever taken, and look how my life is based on how I took this medicine. Well, in fact, that's really a picture of me after I see a moose. Um, but if you take this medicine, your life will be happy. And I think that's kind of the picture people have about God, that he's kind of a Santa Claus figure or a genie in the sky, maybe a big giant butler. That any time I ring this bell or pull this rope, God's going to come running and say, what can I grant you? Is that really what we want God to be about? Our whims and fancies of the earth? Well, if you know anything about the country that we lived in, it's, it's woven into the fabric of our nation, is it not? Because the American dream, the foundation for our country, says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There was a movie a few years ago that was called The Pursuit of Happiness, where a man was giving all of his energies, all of his struggle, and painstaking energy towards accomplishing his own happiness and success. Because that's what the American dream says. That you should strive after your own happiness no matter what the cost. Strive for excellence, and what excellence means is my success and my happiness. No matter who I have to stop to get there, no matter what I have to, to give to make it happen, that is the American dream, and we are all given that promise here in America that we can strive after our own happiness. The problem is, is that's not what God says. What does he say? The pursuit of holiness is a much loftier goal for mankind because holiness means like God. Holiness means you think like God, you act like God, you're striving for the same things that God strives for. So the American dream, although not a bad pursuit, is not a very high pursuit when you compare it to the, to the goals that God has. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, it says this, all flesh, and that includes Pastor Todd, that includes you sitting in the audience, all flesh is like grass. Now, that's not very flattering, is it? I don't tell you that on a Sunday morning. Hey, you're like grass. Thanks for showing up today. You look like grass. No, I wouldn't say that. That's not very kind. It's not very flattering, but it's not supposed to be flattering. It's supposed to be truthful. All flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flower of grass. Now, that sounds a little better, okay? I'm not like grass. Now it's like the flower of grass. The problem is, is the grass withers. That's problematic. And the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Did you know that? Did you know everything that you are and everything you strive to be in this earth will one day pass away if it's not the pursuit of holiness? This is what our life is like. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean there's nothing valuable about our lives. It means that it's very, very temporary. And I get flowers from my wife from time to time, and I'm always amazed at how short-lived they are. You know, when I spend a good amount of money on flowers, I want them around three months, <laughs> right? And in a matter of a couple weeks, these things are withering and wilting, and we have to throw them away, and Janine likes to keep them as long as possible, but they end up looking like that. It's like, oh, man. Why did I do such a thing? I should have bought her something else, you know, something like a book that would last a long time. But flowers and grass wither and fall away. And he says that's what flesh is like. So if God pursued our happiness, no matter what it cost him, it wouldn't be long-lived. It wouldn't be eternal because it's earthly. In fact, we have this example in our pop culture, do we not? I know, I didn't want to bring this up, and yet I had to. 
Um, now, I, I'm a, I was a New England Patriots fan, um, so I'm with you guys, okay? I'm not ragging on you, but this is kind of how the sports world looks. One day you're at the top of the mountain because you won your seventh Super Bowl, and the next day you're frowning near tears, maybe, because it didn't go so well. They should never have called him a goat. Is that it? No, he steals a goat. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to step away from this argument. Oh, oh, okay, all right. But look, that's what happens in the sports world. In fact, it's not just Tom Brady. Two years ago, the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl. They were at the top of the mountain. And what happened this past year? They set the world, the NFL record for most losses by defending Super Bowl champion. So what happened? They went from the mountain to the valley. They went from New Hampshire to Iowa there. <laughs> Because that's the glory of man. The glory of man is not long-lasting. It is, it's very short-lived. You guys remember that game, right? The game, in fact, there's the new Super Bowl champ. They're on the top of the mountain, right? I know you, got a lot of you guys are groaning right now, but don't worry. Because in September, the season will start all over, right? And, and a new glory will be after. Because the Chiefs will no longer be Super Bowl champions. But you guys remember this, right? King of the Mountain? Do you remember, remember this game? Anybody still play this game? Kids love this game. It's very violent. Um... <laughs> But the goal is very easy. You try to get to the top of the mountain and stay at the top of the mountain. Now, usually, unless you're really strong, you don't last up there very long because eventually they're going to drag you off the mountain because the goal is for someone else to get to the top of the mountain. And that's exactly a depiction of our culture. You might get to the top. You might be at the top, but it won't be long-lived because the glory of man is like a fading flower. As soon as you have it, it goes away. And that's... That, that's a picture for what will happen once you get to the top of the mountain and you start boasting and how great things are and how great your life is going. And I feel bad for that poor soul on the right. I hope that's staged. Because who snapped that picture, by the way? Um, his wife? Yeah, his wife. Probably the children and the wife. That's unfortunate. I hope that if I fall one day, my children will not take a picture. But... Um, but that, that happens. That's, that's what man's glory looks like. One day you're at the top of the mountain and everything's going well, and the next day things change. And it proves First Peter is right. It's like a fading flower. But James goes on to say this. Well, it's actually more than this. He says, what is your life? Now think about your life. We've been able to focus upon this yesterday, someone's life and legacy. And actually, the, Pastor Mark left a wonderful legacy for all of us that's going to ripple on and on through this church, and we're thankful for that. But according to James, he says, what is your life? This thing that you live for, this thing that you care so much about, he says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You guys ever seen your breath on a cold morning? Your breath comes out, and there it is, and then it dissipates. James says, that's right there. That's what your life is like. You see it, it comes out. It seems quite prominent, and then in a matter of seconds, it's gone. And one day, we will all have an end to our life here upon the earth. So should God care about man's happiness as his highest pursuit, his greatest pursuit, if he's God, if he's righteous? Is that what he should care the most about? The state of the universe or man's happiness? Let's keep going. Angels and heavenly beings, because there's other beings more lofty than mankind. You know that, right? More glorified, with higher privileges than we have. And there's, there's thousands, maybe millions of these things all, all over heaven. And they're invisible to us, but they exist. 
Maybe that's the highest pursuit. Maybe God can care about something a little loftier than mankind's happiness because of how temporary, temporary it is. So maybe he should care about angels and heavenly beings. Now, it's hard to depict this with a visual image of what angels look like. And I know you've seen angels in pop culture, right? And it's always the traditional humanoid figure with the wings. You know, and there's tons of movies and shows that show angels. But if you read the Bible, what do angels look like? They're very complex, right? You look into Revelation, sometimes they're full of wings and full of eyes all around. And it's, it's a very bizarre looking thing in your mind. But, but angels are very glorified beings. God made them that way. They're very complex and they have great purpose. But in Jude 6, Jude, or, uh, the writer of Jude says this. He says that the angels who did not stay within their own position, what happened to these people? But left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains until the gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Now, angels are glorified beings as long as they stay in their lane. As soon as they get outside of their lane, which happened to a prominent angel called Lucifer. Lucifer was a prominent angel. I believe his name means bright morning star. And he got out of his lane. He decided to usurp or try to usurp the glory of the great God. And as soon as he did that, he fell. Because that's the prophecy for angels when they get out of their lane, they fall. God boots them from heaven. You cannot stay, you cannot leave your lane if you're an angel. Even though you're a glorified being, if you do not stay within the confines that God gives you, God says, be gone. You're no longer with me. In fact, I want to read you a passage from Hebrews chapter 1. This passage in Hebrews is, is so beautiful because it contrasts Jesus with the angels. That's really what Hebrews 1 is all about. And I just want to read it. I don't have time to linger here too long. But the writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God is our creator, but so is Jesus. Jesus created every single one of us. He, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And we're going to circle back to that. That's really important. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's already someone more prominent than the angels, correct? He keeps going. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That never happened to an angel. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Angels are subservient to Jesus. Of all the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're all ministers. Just like I am a minister. I am a mouthpiece. I am a voice for God. I am a simple under-shepherd. Angels are subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Do you see the contrast? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's someone greater than angels. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. What will happen to the heavens? What will happen to the earth? They will perish. They are reserved for fire. They will burn away one day. But you, Jesus, you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. What should God care about? Angels? Man's happiness? The state of the universe? And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, the right hand of the throne of God, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are inherent salvation? In fact, angels serve man, mankind's salvation. They're there to serve God's will. It happens to be our salvation. So, as you can clearly tell from one chapter of the Bible, Jesus greatly out ways far surpasses the angels. So we've looked at the welfare of the universe. We've looked at mankind's earthly happiness. We've looked at angels and heavenly beings. Are they all bad pursuits? No. Are they honorable pursuits? Yes. Are they the highest pursuit? Are they the greatest pursuit that God could have if God was righteous and God was good? Should he care about those first three things most? I wanted you to see that the answer is clearly no. According to the glory and name of God, we get another picture in Revelation of the other side. We get to peek behind the curtain of heaven. And this is what's going to happen on the last day. In fact, I believe some of this is already happening. The 24 elders fall down before him, just looked at him, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the Lord, saying, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's a picture of what goes on. Now we sang at the beginning of our of our time here a worship, a worship songs. And that's that's a great thing to do because that's a little bit of a sampling of what heaven is going to look like. Heaven is going to be us worshiping the one who is worthy, the Lamb of God, the one by whom all things are created, all things are sustained, all things came to be, all things exist. We will fall down, we will cast whatever crowns we get from him back unto the Lord because he is the one who is worthy of it because he lives forever and ever and ever. Amen. And you can begin that right now. You don't have to start, wait till heaven. You don't have to wait till the kingdom of God arrives. You, give that, you are given that privilege now to start directing your praise, your glory, your honor to the one who is actually worthy of it. To take your mind and your focus off of your flesh, off of your desires and your whims and your fancies and say, I'm going to serve something higher. I'm going to serve someone greater than myself. And I remember when that happened for me. When I took my eyes, or God took my eyes off of myself and said, Todd, I'm going to direct them somewhere else. Somewhere higher. Somewhere greater. So let's look at our list again. The first one cannot be the greatest pursuit because the welfare of the universe is cursed. It's awaiting fire and destruction. Mankind's earthly happiness cannot be the greatest pursuit because it's sinful and it's temporary. 
Angels and heavenly beings cannot be the greatest pursuit because many of them have fallen. But God's own name and glory, do you see the difference? Holy, eternal, glorified. Clearly above all the others. And we're starting to prove one thing here. We want God, our God, our great God, to be about the highest thing there is. In fact, I hope you want that about your your earthly leaders, okay, in the White House, right? You hope they don't spend their time doing the same things the common people do, watching Netflix and playing on their phones. I, I would hope that you want your leaders of America to be about higher and greater things than the common person of America. I hope, I hope they have important meetings about important things and talk about really, really high topics. You want God to be about his own glory and name. If you really have this perspective, and we're going to try our best today to finish on this, we want God to care about his own glory and name above everything. Why? Because of this. We were once dead in our sins. We were once broken individuals. Broken, dead, drowning in our sin. And that's how Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 begins. And you were dead in your trans- transgressions and your sins. Now that's a sad state of affairs, that that happened to our souls It became so black, so evil, so ugly that we actually became, in God's eyes, dead. But of course, the story doesn't end there because it says in verse 4, but God, God stepped in. He saw our deadness. He saw our ugly souls, our ugly hearts, and he decided to do something about it. And because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Amen? We were dead. We were broken. We were waiting destruction. And it says, but God, because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. But do you ever ask the question that I've asked before and I've had young adults ask? Why does he love us? Why does he love dead things? I don't love dead flowers. I throw them in the garbage where they belong. When my phone breaks or something breaks, I throw it in the garbage where it belongs. I don't hang onto garbage. I throw garbage where it belongs. Why would God love dead things? Why would God love broken things? Yes, one of the answers is he created us. And anything you create, you have a special tenderness for. But I think there's an answer that even goes well beyond that. Because what would glorify God's name more than anything? than to take something dead and broken and diseased and make it alive again. Make it new, make it righteous, make it holy, make it able to do things it once could never even fathom. I think one of the reasons God saves us, one of the reasons God restores broken dead people is because it will ultimately help him achieve his highest pursuit, which is the glory of his own great name. And I don't know any other thing in creation that would help God's name be lifted up and exalted forevermore than all the people sitting in this room and all the redeemed souls of the earth one day recognizing that fact, going, the only reason I'm alive today is because of my great God and directing that praise and that worship to the one worthy of it and saying, you, you alone, God, are the reason I'm alive. You alone, God, are the reason I have hope beyond the grave. And for the rest of eternity, what will we be doing giving praise and honor and glory to the one who it is due.
Why save us? Yes, because he loves us and because he created us. But also because it can help him achieve the absolute highest pursuit there is, which is the great glory of God's name. In fact, I don't want you to just believe this. I want you to see this. I almost didn't put this in there because this is one of those passages that can lengthen our sermon and pastors don't like to go too long. But in Ezekiel 36, I really just want to read this passage because I think it's so eye-opening for how God's mind works. And this might make you feel uncomfortable a little bit, honestly. But I want you to understand that the two things are linked. God's glory and our salvation are linked. And this is why we want God to be about his own glory. Now, Israel at this time had made quite a mess of themselves, okay? They had actually not only not served God, not kept his commandments, not kept the covenant, they had actually profaned his name among the nations. So Ezekiel, the prophet, is now speaking to the people, speaking about the people, and it says, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Now remember commandment number three. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But that's what they did. They profaned his name by living in all kinds of filth and wickedness and evil, in that the people said of them, These? These are the people of the Lord? And yet they had to go out of his land? These are God's people. These people right here, these wicked, contrite, selfish, idol-serving people are his people? And God hears that, and God knows that. But he says in verse 21, But I had concern for my people's welfare? No, for my holy name. And, there, and you might go back to the Brad Pitt argument going, well, that sounds kind of egotistic. That sounds kind of selfish, God. Your people are the one that are in trouble. Why don't you come down and swoop in and save the day and save your people and lift them up again? But God says, oh, I will, I will. But I need you to understand the foundation for why I will. I had concern for my holy name, which they had profaned, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, not primarily, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. And his action is going to be very profound when he acts. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Will they direct their praise back to the Israelites? Going, man, Israelites, you really cleaned yourself up. You guys are amazing people. You were once doing all these evil things, and now look at you. You're doing really well. No, no, no. What will they do? They will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, you will be my means, the way that I accomplish this great goal, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Because God was not being thought of as quite the high, lofty creature he is. Excuse me, being he is, not creature. God was going to vindicate his holy name. So he says, I will do something for the people of Israel. And I want you to notice all the yous in here, okay? I want you to notice them. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Do you see that? All of these blessings that come to us, to God's people, 
the ones that were dead, the ones that were evil, the ones that had lived for their own selfish desires. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will remove all these bad things from you, and I will give you all these great new things. In fact, it keeps going. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Do you notice the relationship between God's glory and our blessings? Do you notice that? That the foundation for his glory actually benefits my soul in so many profound ways, excuse me. But not because I'm such a treasure. Not primarily. Not because he loves me. Not primarily. Although he does. And not because he created me. Not primarily. Why? But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations by which you came. Now, the Israelites were going to benefit from the fact that God cares most about his own glory. And why do we gather here every Sunday and every Wednesday to praise the name of God? Because without that pursuit of God's, none of us are alive today. None of us. Without God caring mostly about his own name and vindicating his own holy name, none of us are alive today. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. He loves us immensely. It doesn't mean he didn't create us. Of course he created us. God has great love and affection and tenderness and compassion for us. But at the top of that list is not my happiness and not your happiness and not my restoration, but the glory of his own name. And the glory of his name and my eternal benefit come together in a beautiful, harmonious relationship where God says, I can bless you because when I bless you, that glory will be returned back to me. So I believe we've talked about what things God is not about, what God should be about. I believe we've answered the question why we are happy that God is about his own name and glory. But we're left with one question, and we're going to answer that very quickly, is how to glorify God in our everyday lives. And I told you we would circle back to someone very important. Because this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, and it speaks about Someone who went opposite of what most people would expect someone to do. It says, have this mind among yourselves, think the same way, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So think the same way that Jesus thought, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was up. He did not seek to stay up. Isn't that interesting? Everyone's climbing the ladder of success. Where's Jesus going? Jesus went down, but he emptied himself. That should be odd to us. No one does this, okay? No one takes all of their riches and their success and empties it for the sake of somebody else. That doesn't happen, okay? That's very unusual. By taking the form of a servant... And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus had everything that God could have in heaven. All the glory, all the riches, all the exalted beings serving and loving him and praising him. And then he left it one day so that he could come down. And this is a very unusual thing that happens. 
when someone will say, I have everything, and I not only don't want to keep it, I want to lose it all, and I will lose it all for the sake of someone that I love. Jesus went down. He repelled. He left heaven, came to earth, and not only did he come to earth, but all his power, all his riches, all his glory, he left in heaven so that he could become a servant of mankind. Does that make any sense? Why would he do such a thing? Well, it was to save us. And again, it was to accomplish something well beyond that, the glory of God. So it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Did Jesus stay down? Did he die and was buried and that's how it ended, period? Jesus dies on the cross and that's the end of the story? No, of course, he arose from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended back to heaven and he was given the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's an important phrase. To the glory of God the Father. Do you sometimes feel bad that we talk so much about Jesus and maybe not about the Father as much? We talk a lot about Jesus. He's the cornerstone. We talk a lot about the gospel and Jesus being everything here at Crossroads Church. We set Jesus as the absolute pinnacle of our desires and our, and our goals for what we're doing here. It's all about the name of Jesus. Well, I hope you don't feel bad because God set it up that way. God the Father gave his Son the name that is above every name so that when we bow our knee to Jesus, when we confess our tongue to Jesus, what does it do? It glorifies the Father. If you understand the great glory of God, if you understand that that's the highest pursuit possible, what should we do as his people? Give everything to who? Give it all to Jesus. Because it was God who set it up this way. When Jesus was upon the earth, at least twice that we know of, a voice came from heaven and said this, God speaking from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You don't have to split your affections, okay? You don't have to split your affection going, man, I haven't prayed to father, the Father in a while. I haven't, I haven't highly lifted up the Father in a while, which is not bad to do. In fact, it's a very good exercise. Exalt the great God, your heavenly Father who lives in heaven. But God does not want you to feel bad about giving everything to Jesus because he set it up that way. Because when we serve Jesus, what do we do with God's name? We exalt it. We lift it up. And before we close, I want to share a little bit of a story that I may have shared here already. I don't remember. But one day I was driving on the highway, and it was a very sunny day. And I had like a 25-minute commute to where I was going. And along the way, it was a very flat stretch of road, so I could see well, well ahead of me. I noticed there was something really, really bright on the road, well ahead of me. You remember the story? And I, I, I couldn't quite tell what it was. I had seen bright things in the sky, right, like sun, stars, UFOs. Um, no, I've never seen you. <laughs> but I'd, I'd never seen something so bright upon the road. And it, it seemed small, but it, seemed, it was glowing beyond a point that I could ignore it. I, just, I was so transfixed on this thing that as I was driving down the road, and there weren't that many cars around the road that day, I, just, I was focused upon this thing, going, what is that? Is it some special diamond necklace or diamond jewelry? I couldn't wait to see what this thing was because it had to be magnificent. So as I drove down the road and I kept getting closer and closer, the thing started to get more in image, more in focus. As I drove by, I looked down, 
And guess what it was? What was it? It was a little reflector sticker. It had fallen off the median on the side of the road, and it had fallen face up. And as I drove by, I, I had a look of disappointment, like, I thought it was going to be something magnificent. It was stop the car, get it, sell it on Facebook, and be a millionaire. And I looked down, and I said, oh, it's a reflector sticker? Really? And I drove away all disappointed for about 10 seconds, and then a light bulb went on, and I said, whoa. That was amazing. That reflector sticker looked like it was something magnificent. And why did it look like it was something magnificent? Because it was in the perfect position imaginable to reflect the beauty and the glory of the sun that day. And the illustration hit me. It said, Todd, that's you. You're that reflector sticker. On your own, you're nothing. You're insignificant. But when you're in the position to reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, you glow. And you glow magnificently so that the whole world can see. And do they look at you and go, wow, how magnificent Todd is? No, they go, wow, what a great God he must have. Because I know Todd. He's not like that originally. Todd was not like that for a huge chunk of his life. Todd was actually selfish and, and kind of a loser and lived his life for his own whims and, and desires. But now he's a pastor and he's exalting the name of Jesus. And why is he doing that? Because God placed me in the perfect position to reflect the beauty and the glory of his son. And that right there is the highest pursuit of not only man, but of God himself to reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest desire and, the, and, and goal that God himself has, to exalt his great name. And the way that he, the system that he has set up is for us to give everything to Jesus. And I want to share one more verse with you before we close. Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 5. This is a verse that I've memorized because I loved it. And it spoke to me so profoundly. It says, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us or compels us because we've concluded this, we've calculated this, that one has died for all and therefore we've all died. He died for all of us. Jesus' one death accomplished all the deaths that God needed for the payment of our sin. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's a vain pursuit. That's a shallow pursuit. But no, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen? I hope you've understood that and I hope you've made that conclusion that to live for yourself is petty and trite and shallow and hollow. But to live for the one who died for you, to live for the one that God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is the name above all names. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the savior of the world. And one day we will never cease to praise his name. That is the highest pursuit anyone could ever have. So in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen? That is what we're going to set forward as our main primary goal here at Crossroads Church is that no matter what we do, we deflect the glory that comes to us to the great God that deserves it so that we don't receive praise. He receives praise. And you can do that in every circumstance of life according to the Bible. And I believe that's a great pursuit. That everything you do, everything you think about, do it all to the glory of God. Hallowed be your name, God. Here at Crossroads Church, 
and all over the world. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we do want your name to be hallowed. I believe that's a desire of this church and has been for some time. But Father, this is a pursuit that's going to take the rest of our lives. And it's a, it's a worthy pursuit. It's worth our entire being, our entire existence, all our energy, all our money, all our focus to, to possibly get close to exalting the great name of Jesus in our lives. And Pastor Mark did that. We have a great illustration of someone who gave their life to this pursuit. And now his legacy lives on and on and on. Father, help us to understand that this is the greatest pursuit. And that you caring about your own glory and your name is primarily the reason we're alive today. Something that we want. Help us, Father, to get on board and say, yes, I will live too for the glory of God. And I will do it through Jesus because that's the only way that I can. I need that mediator. I need that cornerstone. I need that one who has cleansed me of my sins. I need that person who has become my chief end, my cornerstone of my life. And that I will give my life to serving him, to praising him, to living for him, to telling others about him. And in that position, we would be in the best place to reflect the glory of our God to this dark, dark world that we live on. And that would be a tremendously high pursuit. Father, help us as we set that goal forward. And we give you all the credit and glory for this message today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us?